This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Ruby Hammond, welcome to Better Reading. Hi, thank you for having me. Ruby Hammond is a Lebanese Syrian journalist and author who was raised in Sydney, Australia. Hammond's work has appeared internationally in The Guardian, Prospect Magazine and The New Arab and also locally in Crikey and The Saturday Paper. An article she wrote for The Guardian in May 2018 titled How White Women Use Strategic Tears to Silence Women of Colour went viral and inspired the writing of this book that we're going to talk about, her first book, White Tears, Brown Scars. It's a confronting reality check for the privileged position of white women. It blows open the inconvenient truth that when it comes to race, white entitlement is often too masked by victimhood. Never is this more obvious than the dealings between women of colour and white women. What happens when racism and sexism collide? White tears have a potency that silences racial minorities. Ruby doesn't shy away from providing some confronting answers to these questions. It certainly is very, very confronting, but um, I'm really open for the conversation. Firstly, tell me a little bit about um, your career and how you got here and how you got to be a journalist. Oh, okay. So I started writing, I guess, uh, writing in the sense of for, for public consumption would have been 12 years ago now. So, and I So you grew up started, in Sydney? I grew up life? in Sydney and I at first I did the usual going from you know, straight from high school to university um, without really having a clear idea of what I know? wanted to do. Uh, no, I wanted to be a writer and journalist you knew when that. I was young. And yeah. then I kind of lost that uh, in this, just because, you know, just being told, no, it's it's being a writer and author is too hard and don't make you any, money. any money and you want, you know, it'd be too hard, you're better just to study and go to uni. And so, you know, I did that. And what were you studying? I studied economic social sciences. So my, yes. my majors were psychology and political economy. Mm-hmm. This was a long time ago now. Yeah. But then when I, as soon as I graduated, I just went, I'm going traveling. So I did, then I did that. God, my life's a bit of a series of cliches now. No, um, and I, yeah, so I I was gone for almost four years. Wow. Because I got a work permit in Canada. I went to Canada, uh, North America mainly. So I worked there um, when I ran out of money. And where? And then I traveled. East Coast or Vancouver. Oh, wow. Okay. And I traveled, you know, a bit of South America, Southeast Asia, and Middle East. Right. And when I came back, or by the time I came back, I was, hmm, you know, I didn't do well enough in psychology to do a master's. So what am I going to do now? And, you know, my mind started drifting towards writing and, and filmmaking or script writing. So I 
did a short film course and in Sydney and through that got into the VCA, Victorian College of the Arts Film School. And that was great fun. And I tried, so I, you know, I did, so I made some okay short films there. And after that, I, I went, you know, upon graduating, I was writing scripts and applying for development funding. And, and what I found is I was getting shortlisted a lot, like a lot. So, and then just not getting the funding and people would be like, but shortlist is really good. And it is, and it's gratifying, but at the end of the but day, you don't, you don't have, have the film. The money. Yeah, right. you don't have the money. You still don't have the film. And there's only so much that you can sort of do that. And you start to feel, your, you know, my 20s are slipping away and I'm like, well, yeah, well, what, am I, what am I doing here? And then I started to think, okay, like at least if, you know, if I had pursued the, the just writing, not film script writing and directing, then, yeah, I may not make money, but at least I could do it. You know? <laughs> and so I started writing articles and just sending them, um, you know, cold in, cold emailing uh, editors and at, at newspapers and uh, yeah and yeah. this was you know so we're talking like you know a decade ago now more yeah. at, so the internet wasn't quite what it is there wasn't as many there certainly wasn't the sort of the hunger or derision uh for sort of opinion writing that there is now and websites like Crikey, which was around then, and New Matilda, and they published uh, uh, opinion pieces, but they were more analytical, right? So you you really had to delve into uh, um, the, the issue and back yourself up. Where we're not talking about hot takes, yeah. um, which is what it, it largely is now, because it's all about you know getting so what getting you call those it clicks. Hot take? Well, that's what they call it now, in the sense that something happens and you just rush to be the first or one of the first to give your opinion on it before you really think about yeah. it. So uh, I did that, and so it was a uh, Eureka Street, the small the, that published me first and then you Matilda and then Crikey and then Sydney Morning Herald. And from that, I became a columnist for almost five years at Daily Life, which was the feminist sort of flagship for Sydney Morning or Fairfax Media. And yeah, that's kind of, I started to get a regular, well, I had a regular gig because I was a columnist, but I also started to get you know, a regular platform and an audience. Mm-hmm. And I didn't set out to write about race or even feminism necessarily. It, it so happened, I would write about feminism sometimes and Daily Life responded to that. And because they're a feminist website, then you kind of had to, you know, you you have to write for the audience, you know, mm. that, that you have. And the race, it kind of, it's just both things that you, I just started to see. And what I noticed uh, reading, you know, websites and journals in America that they seemed really when I say America, I mean the United States and and Canada, and uh, they seem further ahead in many ways in their conversation. And I'm not in any way saying that they've solved anything; uh, they haven't. But there was just more of a robustness in in the dialogue there, the, the public discussion. And I thought oh, we need more of that here. So I did start to write that for for Daily Life and sort of carving out that sort of space there. And that's how, you know, all that started. And mm-hmm. So tell me about the, the, the article that was the trigger. God, yeah. So that article. Yeah. So it was only 2018. I, 2018. And in the months leading up to that, um, and the reason, the, way, the reason I was able to sort of put this sort of 
I wouldn't put a name to this phenomenon, was that it happened to me in quick succession. Mm. So it was first published in The Guardian 2018, How White Women Use Strategic Tears to Silence Women of Colour. Mm. Powerful statement. It is powerful statement. Ruby, what I do want to say about that is when I was writing the article, and yeah, I do mention tears and 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 that, and but I wasn't only thinking or even primarily thinking of that. I wasn't primarily thinking, oh, white women cry. It, 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 for me, this this idea of tears or. Uh, uh, presenting yourself has been victimised or been hurt was just one part of the dynamic that I was uh, describing. And I think I, the way I sum it up in that article, uh, which I actually, I think, do a better job in the book, but in the article I, I said that uh, it's a, a dynamic between white women and women of colour where white women are able to turn the tables if a woman of colour has challenged or disagreed with or even confronted a white woman about something that had been done that was detrimental to the women of colour. And, the and white by women, women it, of colour, you are talking yeah. about us. You are talking about yeah. me and you. So we I'm are talking, talking about, about women that, I'm not talking about skin colour here. I'm no. talking about all women who don't qualify as white, as which is, you know, European descendant really. Uh, so women, all women who have experienced racism to various degrees. Again, I'm very uh, adamant and and careful to emphasise that this is not about flattening the experiences of all non-white women at all. And so, yeah, so what I thought is what I I was writing the article is about this, there is this power dynamic at play that white women are able to turn the tables by leaning into uh, characteristics or, or traits that white women are considered to have that women of colour don't have and these are innocence and, and virtue and and we all know how easy it is. I mean, are tropes like the angry black woman, the angry brown woman, they've been around for a long time. Why is that? So, I wanna, so you know, I mean, the reason why we got you in, Ruby, yeah. is because I'm particularly interested in this subject and yeah. I'd never really thought about it until I read yeah. your article, right? And so, and so I first read it in 2018 and I found it very confronting. At first I thought, oh, is this just anger? Um, but then I started to think about it and think about it in the context of my own life. And we talked earlier before we were recording, mm. we're both, you were born in, I think, Syria, is that right? Lebanon. Or Lebanon. Lebanon. Uh, I was born here of Lebanese parents and I de- identify very much as being more Lebanese than Australian. Bingo. I think that's because that's my place here. Right. And then I started working in an industry that is very, very white and very, very female publishing. Right. Mm. And it was back then, less so now, uh, but very much when I was in it. And so when I think now, when I think of when people talk about minorities and when people talk about me too, when we, all those voices always rise above mine. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's what got me interested in you. Interesting. Because then I thought, actually, mm. I've lived it. Yeah. And you, you just didn't realise or maybe you just... No. I, I really think I think lots of things have to align for us to come to these conclusions when we don't have, you know, mm. these sorts of uh, frameworks to, to look right. through it. And that, that was the process for me of writing it where I found... God, it was happening in a work context. It was happening with friends on social media and other, all ending up in a similar way where it wasn't even necessarily that I was arguing with 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 
with the other woman, but there would be a disagreement or something or even just a, a I wanted to talk about something bad that was happening to me and uh, just to have a friend to, you know, to vent. And then the conversation would always turn to somehow me comforting her or apologising to her. Now, when that happens once, twice, well, you just think, okay, well, it's just, mm. it's just our relationship. It's just that situation. And then you start to think, it must be me, right? What is it about me? Maybe I am this bad, horrible person. Maybe they are upset at me. Maybe they, yeah, um, yeah, all the, all these things. But then it was what first started me was it was a um, it was a face it was a Twitter thread, and which I describe in the book and in the article as well. And it was a black woman in Canada, I think, and she's just. She wrote this thread saying that every black woman I know has a story about a work context where she's in, she's gone to a white woman colleague uh, to tell her about some behaviour that's harmful to her, to the to the black woman, and it's ended up with the white woman crying. And I just stopped and I went, this, this is what I'm talking about. And then the thread continued, she's not crying because she feels bad. She's crying um, be, because... Oh, wish I could remember. It's in it's in the book. Uh, she's she's essentially crying because she's de- she's deflecting the conversation and claiming victimhood, so she doesn't actually have to discuss what she has done to make the black woman upset. And if the black woman pursues that, then she'll end up being losing her job or getting blackballed. Yeah. And I think that it was the Twitter handle was feminist Griote that wrote that. That's that's the name she went by. And I thought, okay, she's. You know, I don't, I don't, this is a, a black woman in Canada. This is very similar to where I'm experiencing. Is this the same sort of thing, right? And so I put that thread up on my Facebook. I had a Facebook page at that time, a public page. And I asked, have, you know, black and brown women in Australia, have you experienced something like this? And then I just had this, <laughs> this overwhelming response. Yes, I have in this at work and this work and that way. And I was like. Oh, in every day. Every, yeah, yeah. So, but, yeah. you know, and so it was just. See, but. This is happening to us all the time. And then the, another article by Lovey um, Ajayi, who wrote about white women's tears and how they can be weaponized in the context uh, against black people in general, black men in particular, I think she was talking about. And I thought, is, is this kind of all related? And that's what led to See, that. but the thing is, you know, one of the things that I'm still thinking about, mm. right, about you and, and, and your article is that isn't, can't there be a voice for all of us? Yes. And, you know, that that's, that's the only problem I'm having with that, mm-hmm. <laughs> actually, is because sometimes the people that speak the loudest always gazump us all the time. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
what I'm worried about is sometimes is when we talk, firstly, I take great offence to women being called a minority, generally. Isn't that funny? Yeah. I, it really shits I me. I sometimes see women and other minorities. <laughs> yeah. What are you talking about? about <laughs> you know, that really just, it shits me so badly. Yeah. And then, you know, you sit in a room with men and you just think, what the hell? Like, why is that? Also, and getting back to your references about reading articles, like mm. say, for instance, in, in Northern um, America versus here, I think I agree with you. Um, and I think too, and I, you know, and this is a white woman, but I want to talk about the treatment of Julia Gillard just very mm. briefly. Mm-hmm. Um, the way we treated her was really, I feel that this country owes her an apology, the oh, way I that agree. she was treated. And I also think the way other women treated her, and when you look at and even journalists in this country didn't even pick up or report the misogyny speech. That came via The Guardian back the other way. Is That's the interesting thing, right? The, look at the way she, uh, the response here to her speech, whatever you think about it, yep. you know, um, versus how it was received overseas. Yeah. No journalist yeah. in this country picked yeah. it up for a couple so, of days until it came by exactly. overseas. And it was the same. I don't have to compare myself to Julia Gillard, but it was pretty much the same with my article. Yeah. It wasn't until, because, you know, when it came out here, the Northern Hemisphere is asleep. Yeah. It wasn't until that the, the UK and US editions of The Guardian put it on their front page that it really took off. Yeah. And that is where that is the really like where the, the, the whole support and encouragement and the suggestions that can like you should really seize on this and, and write a book about this because it's now you've just pushed it right out there. This is, you know, and the women were saying and stuff that we all we all knew that I kind of gave a particular framework to look through, look at it through and then just put it up on the front page of one of the biggest, um, you know, liberal white-owned papers and run papers in the world. So, yeah, and but I know that if I if that article had, say, been in a – this is nothing against the, the, the Australian newspapers in, in any yeah. way or websites, but if it had been in an Australian-only website, whether it's the Herald, whether it was Cracker, anywhere, it was not – I would not be sitting here with the book. I'll no. tell you that much. No, I know you won't. I, there's no way in the world. It yeah. is the fact that – God, I was able to sort of transcend um, the obstacles faced by women, uh, all women, and then women of colour in particular even more because it, it kind of went directly to the world. Uh, and, and why that, do you that think happened. that is about this country? Ah, uh, look, it's, it's, it's obviously this combination of, of, I don't even know if combination is the right word, but it, you know, how I talk in, in the book is that, that race and gender are like two sides of the same coin. And when you, when you step outside of the way that you're expected to act as a woman, so yes, white women can get further ahead than women of colour and they can have more, and they do have more power. However, there are still parameters to how they are meant to act. And I think a lot of white women learn whether they do it consciously or unconsciously. They learn to navigate that. So then to present. Because we're all one to survive, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. And, and so they learn to present themselves in that way that yeah. they know the world wants to or Australia wants to see, hence what I'm looking at here, the yeah. whole, oh, I'm so hurt, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm helpless and I need protection. So uh, all these things that, that those sort of those tears are, are meant to signify, even though they're often coming from women who do have a fair bit of power and status. And cause, because Gillard didn't do that, right, no. 
So she's not the kind of, well, she wouldn't be that kind of white woman that I'm sort of discussing um, in that book, I don't think. I, I, I wouldn't know. But the, because the fact is that she was more assertive in that way, that, that she refused to, to, to play uh, that that sort of that role of of even if, even though you're powerful and in parliament you still have to be like the 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 you know you know she was like given up so much grief over having a no fruit in her fruit bowl oh, or something you? you know all those things and she had Do you know that you was know, a reputable newspaper that reported you know that. The, yeah, all those I mean, things unbelievable. And, and, and how her relationship was put under the microscope and because she didn't have children so so she was defying all of these expectations that women were meant to f- fulfill even a woman who's a prime minister and now I'm not saying all this stuff to to, you know, this isn't all about uh, defending Julia Gillard yeah, or, or no. her, her prime ministership or any, anything like that. And that's well, sort of, yeah, yeah, that's a whole separate issue. I'm really just looking at the dynamics of yeah. how Australia responded to her. Yeah. And I think that's what it was, um, her not playing by those sorts of restrictions and rules of, of, of being like, no, I'm not going to be what the white woman or the woman is supposed to be. And she got punished for that very badly and so very bad and but then her speech went overseas and everyone was just like this is amazing like look what she just said can you believe you know so mm. and in a way like it's quite and a every similar... journalist in this country missed it for 12 24 hours yeah that could and have then, been the first to jump on it and no, they didn't female no, they and were, male they, journalists yeah and yeah. then and also even after that they you know i i remember seeing you know journalists on, on twitter were like oh well it's it's they don't know the full story. Of course, it's of course it looks really impressive when it's just that sound bite, but they don't know. It's kind of like oh, it wasn't please. just a sound yeah, bite. Yeah, for God's sake, it was longer and than that. Yeah, so <laughs> it's that similar thing. Like you know, obviously it was uh, too little, too late for her in, in that sense. But that was obviously some vindication for her to to know that her words did have an impact elsewhere. Yeah. And oh, then absolutely. sort of force a lot look of at people her here. Now. Yeah, yeah. Um, has has the Me Too changed this country? Do you think has has Me Too changed the way we perceive women in this country? I don't think so. Not yet. Has I it? don't think so. And I think, um, you know, because with it, it's you know I don't want to get into that either. So I don't want to be sort of uh, like uh, critiquing or, or criticizing particular women. But you know, with all the sort of the issues that have come yeah. out around that and some of the sort of spokespeople, if there's such a thing, spokeswomen for that, um, has kind of perhaps overshadowed or undermines it. But I also think that, yeah, I, I just, we're talking about such deep-rooted foundational structures that are so old and it's the, you know, it's the foundation of what this society is and has not only been built and built and built upon, it's, you know, it's kind of like set in so, so a couple of years of, of, of something like Me Too. And I'm, it's not enough, know, is no. it? And, and there has to be sort of an interrogation of, of, you know, of even deeper. But having said that, like, you know, Me Too has definitely brought a lot of, uh, of comfort and empowerment and vindication for individual women. So I'm not going to. Yeah. Um, criticize it on on that point but um in the sense of has it changed i don't know i don't i don't i don't think so because you know as we've seen or you know with with some of the the men they've been accused they've been able to get pay uh victories in court with defamation which also undermines the um well because the system's rigged with men running the system this is this is the thing the system is strong Mm. the system has a way of 
co-opting things that seem like a challenge to it and that could be like, is this the death blow for patriarchy? Is this the death blow for white supremacy? No, it just finds a way to somehow turn it into a strength. Yeah. And I'm waiting to see how white tears turns into a strength for white whiteness. Um, uh, we'll see. Um Jan Fran, who I quite like, I don't mm-hmm. know if you're aware of her, yeah. but I, I do love her and I used to love her yeah. little snippets for SBS and she did yeah. a fantastic one on Merit Man. I don't know if you saw that. I love <gasps> it. It's one, one of my favourites. Yeah. Right, okay. I have it saved on my phone. But she talks about this power struggle and how, you know, men get promoted, you know, just mm. basically on looks and the fact that they're white and they're male and, you know, pretty much off they go. And then women have all these obstacles in front of them. So mm. we're expected to, you know, um, like they're saying that it's on merit that we get there. But in actual fact, there's like, you know, 50 obstacles in front of us versus mm. no obstacle in front of him, if you like. But I guess what you're saying, you can even break that down further, can't you? Oh, absolutely. Um, so what I'm saying there is... Um, you know, often we're in position, we as in uh, women of colour, where we're working alongside white women, yes. white feminists, to break down doors and then somehow the door does get broken down and then while we're still being like, hey, now there's room for us, suddenly we as women of colour find the door has been closed again, this time by the white woman who just, the you know, the day yeah. before ha- was working alongside us. And yeah. what happens when we try to say, hey, wait, wait a minute, what's going on? oh, what? no, why are you attacking me? Oh, no, don't you know, like, you know, now that white women uh, have have a little bit more power, we're going to be able to lift all women up. And mm. it's like, well, well, that's not what's happening because you've literally just shut the door in my yeah. face. Um, so that is what I'm getting at. And and in the sense that we were talking about the whole, I mean, I know it's in the title, White Tears, but I don't, I don't want to get, I don't want, I hope people don't get too stuck on that. Yeah, particular concept because it's, it's bigger than that. It's so yeah. much bigger. It's really, it's about, but yeah, it's also, going back to the, you know, with, with Julia Gillard, it's about the way in which white women are able to lean into this archetype that I call the damsel in distress, um, to lean into that in interactions with a woman of colour who's proving sort of, you know, problematic. And all of these, these are so ingrained in all of us that, and we don't see them. That, and, and all those virtues or the characteristics that we assign with white women, which is, the innocence, the virtue, um, and versus the angry brown or black woman who's ungrateful, and 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 you know why is she making that nice white lady sad? So those, all of these unwritten, unspoken um, dynamics are at play, and we instinctively know as women of color before I put a name to it, before I even recognize that this was a, a power dynamic and and a pattern across all of white society, I. I instinctively knew that I can't push this any further. Anything I say now is, it's just not going to work for me. No, on my side is not really going to be taken seriously. People are going to believe it. And regardless of whether I'm right or wrong, I will be wearing the blame. And so you know that. And so then you have to kind of take that and stop. You just need to look at industries. Yeah. Like you look at like, say, the media, it's full of, you know, um, white men and and white women mainly. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's very, very small representation of women of colour. Um, you look at politics, it's exactly mm-hmm. the same. I mean, you know, so it is really something that is, if you look at the pecking order of being heard, we're very low down. Well, we're low down. down because we're, ex- you know, the 
we're still because we're women as well as women yeah, of color. Exactly. Then, then when white we're women are, whammy, if yeah, you well, like. and then when white women are elevated, then they're considered or they're said to represent all of us. Uh, when I say represent, you know, I, I mean in the sense that we should feel that we're being included or we're being. Uh, you know, the, the obstacles to us are also removed or getting removed because, look, there's more white women in media, in publishing, in politics, in everywhere. Um, and so that means it's fine. This, yeah. that, that obstacle for women is starting to be dismantled. However, because we're not white, it's still there. Yeah. It's still there for us. Do you follow US politics? Yeah. Uh, so what about the women, um, what are they called, the four? Oh, the squad. The squad. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it's... Similar challenges, I'd imagine. Absolutely. And, you know, I don't know much about how the, um, you know, Ilhan Omar and Ayanna Presley sort of came up. I'm, I know more about uh, AOC, Alexandria yes. Ocasio-Cortez, yes. um, just because her story is, is, is the most sort of well-known. And I, I followed while she was going for the primary. So she hadn't won yet and uh, uh, in the congressional district in New York. And she was running against the incumbent Democrat who was like, yeah, he'd been around forever. Huge. And so she's a bartender at that time. Yeah. So everything from the Bronx. And so everything she, she, she got this grassroots behind her and she was able to sort of amass, um, you know, these, these, I would say most of them would be fellow working class mm-hmm. uh, people across a lot of racial uh, uh, and age uh, demographics uh, behind her, and then she beat um, she beat you know the Democrat in the in the primary, and then she beat her Republican challenger, and and that's pretty much a phenomenal like that is a phenomenal story yeah. uh, for someone coming from from that sort of that that working class. But when background. people but, go them, they go them on race. Uh, absolutely. Go. See, I was digressing there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this yeah. is this is the thing, Cheryl. Like, we're told, oh, we talk about race too much. We talk. And as yeah. I was said earlier, I didn't set out to write about race. Yeah. But what I discovered is no matter what I wrote about, I was being, you know, anything I wrote, well, you're you're Muslim. Of course you'd say that. Look at, uh, literally I would see comments underneath, uh, before Twitter really took off, when the comments were, when it was still comments under the articles that were contentious, I would just be like, well, her last name is Hammett. Of course she'd say that. Yeah. So it's like yeah. I wasn't bringing my race into it, and yeah. but it was getting brought into it more and more. And so when you see that happening, of course you're going to start thinking about that and questioning, going, what's going on? Like even when I don't want to make an issue and or when I thought maybe my race wasn't as big an issue, yeah. it actually really is. Yeah. And that's why I did start writing about race more and, you know. And well, I'm glad you have. Yeah, I really well, I still, I mean, jury's out for me because this book's been very... Uh, it's uh, not easy. No, but look, you know, I obviously for me to even write that article, I was in a place where I was really questioning a lot of things because yeah. my career wasn't going anywhere. Yeah. Um, in the sound, I felt like I'd sort of been at this level for a long time and I was like almost like I wasn't able to progress further. <laughs> I was like, what's going on? Like I've seen other feminist writers that started before me or after me that are just flying and and I'm still sort of here. And, you know, and then, as I said, these incidents with various women, including, you know, an editor of mine and a, an online friend and a real life friend. And I was, that played out very similarly, very different women, different contexts, different issues, played out very similarly, quickly turned it around on me and said um, that, Basically, I'm being mean and I'm not, you know, I forget the editor that said, 
I my job is really very stressful and I'm just sorry nothing's good enough for you, Ruby. I was like, well, wait a minute. Like I'm a freelance writer. You're you're an editor. Like you yeah. got a job and you're set. Like I'm the one who's like, oh, and it was just a minor. I don't want to sort of go into the details of it, but I was very much the wronged party. And I guess I'll have to ask um, the audience to uh, um, believe me on that. But even if they don't, you know, don't want to take my word for it, that's that's okay. Still consider that an editor saying to a freelance writer, "I my job is very hard and I'm sorry nothing's good enough. That's a little, there's a, there's a power thing there. And it was also that whole, uh, but it's just essentially like stop attacking. I'm like, how, like, this is just such a complete, um, uh, what's the word, like a, a, a negation of, of the power difference between us. And yeah. and I knew then if I, and I did actually end up pressing forward and I ended up leaving that gig because of it, um, that I just knew I wasn't going to win. Yes. You know, and and when that's, I guess I said, started happening in other contexts, I was like, this, this is a pattern. And this is where I really want to stress that, you know, one of the things that's hard about talking about race is... We still, and this is because of race science, which is making a comeback, sadly, but we're not talking about biology in this context, right? When I say white women are able to lean into their race privilege or white women are able to do this or white women have power, it's not because they're they're born white women and there's this natural uh, uh, inherent quality about them that's going to make them act or say in certain ways. No, we're talking about a system that we're all conditioned into. Exactly. And it's a system, because it was set up by white people, mainly white men, um, but increasingly also white women, it's going to privilege them and it's going to give them access to tools that we, the rest of us, don't have. And when it comes to white women and women of colour, that that one of those tools is the presumption of innocence. We don't have that. Women of colour don't have a presumption of innocence. And I am very careful to stress that doesn't mean we're always right. You know, I don't want oh, to get into not. that sort of identity sort of politics territory where it's like, well, I'm a brown woman and I said this and so therefore I have to be right because I'm like, that's, that's, that's kind of, you know, what, I, what I'm yeah. trying to say is we don't even get a fair shot. Yeah, we just need to be so, heard. So, yeah. So what can we do to give us a fair shot so that they're playing, well, I mean, I look at why we don't have a fair shot. So go back yeah. into the history of it. And so that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about behaviours that are learned and, and that we're socialised into uh, and, and the the stereotypes that govern how we're seen. I'm not talking about biology. Ruby Hammond, thank you so much for speaking with us oh, today. That went very quick. Thank you. It's my <laughs> pleasure. <laughs> If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere.
when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.